this week's DNA podcast brought to you by the Netmega Assist. Myself, Ritwik, the host, and as usual, joined by Chris as we are going to deep dive into the Champions League final, which was a pretty interesting match overall. A lot of interesting uh, or detailed points to discuss as well, although the result seems pretty much uh, normal. So, Chris, first of all, did you enjoy the final? Uh, yeah, it was, quite, it was a good game, mate. It was quite entertaining, uh, provided entertainment as well. Yeah, I think it went pretty much how we expected it to go and predicted it to go. Um, and I was a firm believer that whoever whoever scored the first goal would go on to win the game. And that was the case. Yeah, lots of interesting uh, points as well uh, regarding the game. But Chelsea finally winning the Champions League, the second, the second Champions League uh, in their club history. Manchester City still without the Champions League. Probably, I, I mean, a lot of people probably bet that this was their year, the way they came back in the Premier League after that early bad start or shaky start in the league. The way they came back up, the way they won the Carabao Cup, um, they, they actually slipped in the FA Cup. Again, yeah. once again, once again to Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea. And this probably is going to irk Guardiola a little bit because he's lost He's played Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea three times this season. He's lost all three games, and I think it's pretty much safe to say that safe to say that Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea has got the better of of Guardiola City all the three on all the three occasions as well. Because I think in all the three games, Tuchel pretty much went with pretty much went with almost a similar or the same style and setup completely yeah. and in all the three games he managed to actually nullify City's attack to a very good extent especially yesterday I know this, the number of attempt shots was 7 to 8, 7 for City and 8 for Chelsea I think but Man City had just one shot on target just one shot on target I mean since Guardiola took over City I think this is probably the third or fourth time that City have been restricted to less than two shots on attempt in a game. So yeah. that is that that actually speaks a lot on how good Chelsea was yesterday defensively. But first of all, Chris, when you saw the City lineup, I know the Chelsea lineup was pretty much straightforward. Um, Kai Havertz, Timo Werner. And I mean, I, I'll just go. I'll just brief through the lineups first. Yeah, for for, for for Chelsea, it was up 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 top. It was Kai Havertz, Timo Werner, and Mason Mount. That three up front, and yeah. in the midfield, it was N'Golo Kante and Jorginho. And as usual, Thomas Tuchel go with a five at the back or three at the back, or however you want to put it. It's it's more of a three four two one or a three four three ish uh, formation. So Reese James has the right wing back. Pencil as a left wing back, Cesar Spiliqueta as the right centre back, Antonio Rodrigo being the left centre back, Thiago Silva in the middle, and Edward Mendy in goal as well. As for City, Ederson started in goal as expected, Zinchenko left back, Ruben Diaz, John Stones centre back pairing, Kyle Walker started as a right back. In the midfield, and this is where I think the lineup pretty much shocked a lot of people, Phil Foden. Elkai Kondogan, Bernardo Silva. No defensive midfielders. I mean, the whole season, I think, I think apart from apart from one game, I don't know which game it was, or, or I don't know if there was even one game, City have not played without either Rodri or Fernandinho. City have not yeah. started a game without Rodri or Fernandinho. I, I guess... Apart from a single game, that was the stat I think I saw somewhere. I'm not sure how how correct it is. So that that was probably the biggest call of the game from Guardiola. A lot of people before the game, when they saw the lineup, was telling me that Peps once again overthought and I guess he's going to mess this up. And he'll come to that. But up front, Raheem Sterling, Riyad Mahrez on the other side, De Bruyne playing as that false nine-ish. The false sign is a striker. The system that City have 
have like been very successful with this season but nothing seemed to work for them to be honest i didn't actually see any proper attacking attacking phase or or an attacking structure from city i think everything was probably cut out mostly by say mostly by the chelsea the, the people occupying the central zones from chelsea and golo conte especially was winning duels left and right i think he ended up being uh, winning the most duels in the game 11 i guess overall and in terms of uh, duels won uh, minus duels lost he still stands out being uh, the best duel winner in in yesterday's game so yeah city's central overload didn't work at all and even on the wings as well i think reece james had a really amazing game yesterday he completely marked raheem sterling out of the game and whenever sterling was trying to get these teams isolated as well i think having the back three probably helped chelsea a lot and that's 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 been that's been trademark uh, chelsea since thomas tuchel took over but yeah i don't want to drag it first of all so what do you think about city's lineup chris especially starting without a defensive midfielder um, yeah i mean i think it took everyone a little bit by surprise but then I think people have massively play, overplayed how sort of effect, how it affected the results. I don't think it played a hand in the results at all. I think mean, people are first and foremost. I think I mean I think a general general football fan loves Pep Guardiola to fail, don't they? I don't know what it is, <laughs> but it, I mean, come on! I mean, you you must know when he fails, Twitter goes into overdrive, doesn't it? I mean, people love to see him fail. And obviously, people are hammering him for this decision over the defensive midfielder, but I don't. And it it did surprise me just because of how, not necessarily the fact that he didn't play with a defensive midfielder, but just the fact that neither Fernandinho or Rodri played didn't play, but in like a different position. And the reason for that, Rick, is like you you just mentioned it there. It's quite understandable, really, why he didn't do it. And I don't think it affected the results. I don't think this is why Manchester City lost the game because Fernandinho or Rodri didn't play. I don't think it had anything to do with the results. I had any. I don't think it had any bearing factors on the results at all. But that's just my opinion. Chelsea, you know what you're going to get with Chelsea because they played the same way since Tuchel took over. They play with a structure of three centre halves. It's a three-two structure. The three centre halves and then the two defensive midfielders. Obviously, Kante is allowed to roam and allowed to go and win the hunt the ball. He's allowed to roam when they're in possession as well. Jorginho just sits. Now, given the fact that they sit with a two in front of the the back three, it makes sense. Obviously, it's a risk for City, for City to try and do this and for Guardiola to try and do this, but it still makes sense whether one of people just want to take the blinkers off for a minute. So, like you said, try and create an overload essentially. Now, if you're playing with a defensive midfielder like Fernandinho or Rodri. Then let's say, for example, you take last take Gundogan out the game and play play Fernandinho, Rodri, and you sit them in front of the Stones and Diaz. Then you don't create that overload centrally because De Bruyne and Bernardo Silva, who started the game, are then up against Jorginho and Kante. However, if you take the defensive midfielder away and play Gundogan and say you push up as a free instead of a like one a one two structure and three and we try and create that overload there and folding drops then you're creating sort of a four on two so I, I could understand completely in the game why he done it I don't I don't think the fact that Fernandinho and Rodri didn't play is the result is the sort of is the main factor as to why Chelsea have gone won, won that game it was a little bit of a, of a surprise just because of how important them two players have been but it, I can see why he tried to do it And I know people are sitting there saying, "Oh well, Guardiola overthought this and he got it wrong." I don't think that. I don't think that's. I think the issue of what he got wrong or what City got wrong is favour up the field for me. A lot favour up the field. Yeah. I was surprised that Sterling. I was surprised that Sterling started because I don't think he's been in form at all, especially the last part of the season. But then I can understand it because obviously they have to get try and get in behind Chelsea, but it just didn't happen for them. It didn't happen, and I just don't. Obviously, we'll touch on that fact that we'll go favour up the field in a minute, won't we? As we discuss, as we discuss, obviously, other parts of the lineup and other parts of the um, other parts of the game plan. But yeah, the defensive midfield, I don't think was as big as issue as what people have made out. 
Absolutely. Uh, I mean, before the game, if you would have asked me, I would have said, okay, this is this is probably not the greatest idea from Guardiola because in yeah. such a it's such a high-profile game. This is probably the biggest game uh, of his City career, to be honest. In my opinion, uh, I, I actually saw that as his biggest game of his City of his City career, especially because. Uh, Man City has actually never won a Champions League before and if he had done that it would have been like uh, I mean that probably makes you probably the biggest manager in club's history right uh, at the moment as well not, not that he yeah he isn't with all the other achievements but yeah I mean you know you, you know what I mean actually so yeah, I mean, of course do, yeah. to actually uh, make such a big call uh, in, in such a high profile game I think it really surprised me but I could actually understand what he was planning to do I had discussions yeah. with a lot of people as well and like you like you mentioned I think his plan to probably keep a lot of possession and create a numerical advantages in the middle as well so I think I think his idea wasn't wrong completely I don't think so but I think it's, it's it's more of like like you mentioned, I think Raheem Sterling got completely marked out of the game, and and no disrespect to Raheem Sterling, I think he's had a very average season, to be honest. I think yeah. going by his standards, he's been really really poor in the last what three four months, especially, and I don't think it was the right decision to start him probably over Gabriel Jesus, and having Kevin De Bruyne as the false nine, also in my opinion, it didn't actually didn't actually help Man City at all because they, I think, I mean, one thing about Chelsea this season under Thomas Tuchel is whenever they, they, they play with three at the back and I don't think a lot of teams have been able to actually create good opportunities against this particular setup and I think most of it is down to the back line actually reaching to the end of the ball or actually getting to the ball before the opposition fires a shot or probably pushing the opposition to a low probability area of shooting. So that's been one of their uh, biggest strengths or one of their uh, what one of the biggest traits uh, in, in my opinion this season. Thomas Uckel Chelsea especially, not Frank Lampard's one. But, yeah. but I think I've seen a few teams actually using their forwards movements or, or the wingers movements to actually split the, the defense and make some really good runs into the middle and actually create some kind of space. I mean, the, the end part is getting the shot away, but they, I, I've seen a, a few teams actually create a, a certain few chances with some really good moments. And I don't think having Kevin De Bruyne as the false nine really helped Manchester City. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, t- I'll touch on, on that position in a minute as well I just wanted to take you back to this defensive midfield issue as well that other people are going to sort of bring up is another reason why I understood why he tried to do it is because you mentioned in the lineup, obviously in Chelsea's lineup in particular sometimes people lay it out like they play a free it can be it can be considered to be a 3-4-2-1 or a 3-4-3 or a 5-2-3 the way it transitions but the two midfielders behind, you could say they were playing behind Kai Havertz. So you could say Werner and Mount, or you could say, I know they rotate between the three of them. Or, well, sorry, it was more Havertz and Werner rotating position. They were playing really wide in the first half. They played really wide. So from Guardiola's point of view, he's probably looked at this. And don't get me wrong, I'm no tactical genius, but he's probably looked at it and thought, well, we're going to dominate the centre of the pitch anyway because they're going to go out wide. So we're going to have also a numerical advantage defensively because, say, for example, Werner drifted out drifted out because he played a lot on the right. I don't know whether the heat maps will actually show that, but from he was drifting out right, right especially when out of possession, Mount played further left. I know, again, there'll be times within that first half in particular that they might have swapped, but that's the way I've seen it. And then Kai Havertz might have dropped centrally a little bit again playing that sort of showing that movement that a false nine that people label as a false nine but even then you would still Guardiola's probably thought well we've still got the two centre-halves so even defensively I'm not leaving myself short by not playing 
Fernandinho and Rodri because we still could cre- we we could create a defensive overload centrally as well because if the other two keep drifting out wide to try and track the fullbacks and I know Kyle Walker especially in the first half play played a lot more centrally uh, or he tucked in a lot more as a right uh, as a right back which is, is again not unusual to see from a Pep Guardiola team and that, that's another reason why I think it made sense uh, because I, don't, I don't think uh, you could probably argue that Chelsea probably had the better or certainly the most effective team in the first half not just because of the goal but just because they looked more dangerous than Manchester City but it, the attacks didn't come from the centre of the pitch it didn't come because Fernandinho and Rodri wasn't there it just come because Chelsea done what Chelsea do and they transition really quickly from defence to attack they counter attack really effectively uh, and they were having a lot of joy especially seeing to be down the left hand side Chilwell and Mount linked up really well I thought again that's not not on to do with the Fernandinho Rodri situation though and people keep saying oh already lost it because he didn't play defensive midfielder didn't have any bearing for me defensively or offensively um, obviously you've put you've brought up some very good good points there regarding the false nine position that City seems to have ran with a lot this season whether it be De Bruyne or whether it be Foden uh, I mean it looked like it was going to be the Brona, but also at times I thought it looked like it was going to be folding as well. And I just don't think it suits the players. Although I'm not Kevin De Bruyne is a world-class footballer. There's no doubt about that. And I actually firmly believe Phil, Phil Folden is certainly on the way to that level. He'll definitely hit that level. Uh, but I thought it was, if you played them in that role, you, you're just t- taking a little bit away from the, not away from the game because the are ability shines. When you, you've got ability to that level, then it, sh- it shows wherever they play. But I just think you're taking something away from the way they play by playing them in that role. And I, w- I, w- I was thinking about this really because, again, I don't think it worked. I thought Chelsea's centre-halves and, and the front and, and that two, that sit, completely nullified uh, City attacking centrally. Now, you've touched, we've, we've both touched on the issues regarding Raheem Sterling. I don't think Mares had the great game or he had the best game again or he certainly weren't as effective uh, he, he became a little bit more influential as the second second half went on but like you said yeah I thought Chelsea's fullbacks just won their 1v1 battles all game for the whole 90 minutes I thought sorry not the fullbacks the winbacks Chilwell and Reece James I thought they were just they just won their battles uh, and Again, another thing I noticed is Mares and Sterling played really, really wide. I thought in the first half, and it become it, it become that, and that's another reason why I think City's attacks just kept shutting down, is because they were trying to create the overload centrally, but then they were having to go out wide, and them two were really, really wide, and I thought they played more wide than I've ever seen them play this season at all. And I'm not I'm not going to sit here and say I've watched every single minute of every single Man City game, but they maybe. Maybe that's maybe that's the way they plan to do, it, or maybe that's what they ha- felt that they had to do, because to get some space on the ball. <clears throat> but Chelsea were allowing them to do that. They were allowing them to have the ball in those wide areas, and then just shutting them down essentially, and nothing got through. Um, and I, f- I thought that was another pivot- pivotal factor, uh, probably even more so again than the defensive midfield issue. You took you've touched on you've touched on the false na- false nine issue I get of De Bruyne. And again, whoever plays that role, because I, I think this is where City lost the game. I really do. Um, and I'm sure you'll agree with me on this, Riff. Uh, <clears throat> they've done really, even as a Liverpool fan, I think you'll agree with me on this. Uh, I think they've done really well to win the Premier League without a recognised striker, because I don't really think Aguero and Gabriel Jesus have really affected their Premier League title win or sort of contributed to it massively. Uh, and I know there's been issues from Aguero's perspective, COVID-19 issues as well. I think they've done really well to win the Premier League without a recognised striker. But you don't win. You do not win the Champions League without a recognised goal scorer. You don't do it. And I know they've done well. I thought they've done well to get to the, the final without playing it. And I, I know people are going to who, who might listen to this might go, oh well, he won it. He won it with uh, he won it with Messi playing as a false nine. Okay. Yeah, and he did win it with Messi's playing as a false nine. But he also had a striker out wide called David Villa, 
who was a recognised goal scorer for that Barcelona team. So they had goals from out wide. Okay, and I know if you that was that was 2011, by the way. Obviously, the 2009 victory again. People might say, "Oh yeah, well, Messi played centrally again. He's a false nine. He's not a recognised. He's not a recognised striker." But who did he have either side of him? Thierry Henry and Samuel Eto'o. So there was goals from all over that front three. And, and let's face it, Messi's a, a unique player anyway. He can play anywhere. And people want to say, oh, he's not a recognised goal scorer. Well, yeah, look at, look at his record. This Man City team, for me, to play that false nine role, you, you, you need, you need recognised goal scorers across the front. And I don't, as good as what they have been in the Premier League, I think that just shows the Champions League is a different level of football. Goals, yes, the saying goal, the the old saying goes that goals win football matches. Yes, that's correct. But goals also get you back in games when 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 your chips are down, so to speak. And when you look at front City's front three, if you're playing bad as a team and something's not clicking for you, if you've got that goal scorer of a predatory instinct, you can get something out of nothing. Would you, if you look at that front three, as good as what all of them are, or front five, or however they transition into attack, as good as, we're talking about world-class footballers here, as good as what they are, do any of them have that predatory instinct? Um, I, I actually don't think so. I mean, I mean, it, it, it's been like pretty evident this season, isn't it? That City, City doesn't have like a, like a goal scorer, like you mentioned. I mean, Aguero yeah. has been doing doing it for them uh, for for a for a lot of years right now, and even last season as well. I think he did he he hit double figures if I'm not wrong before uh, before the injury. Uh, I'm not I'm not hundred percent sure yeah. about that, but yes. But and this and this past summer, I I thought that Man City would have actually went out went out and signed a striker, but uh, they didn't. They they bought in Ferran Torres, who's who's, who's actually a winger as well, right side. Yeah winger as well and I mean it's fine because people take uh, a year to adapt and he has also actually had a few cameos in that uh, in that false nine or a, that striker role yeah. as well up top centrally so the plan actually was to actually uh, I, I guess I, I guess the striker signing was ideally delayed because of the pandemic I mean I we did see Guardiola actually mentioning how pandemic has affected the finance even if it's a club like Manchester City as well, I think it probably probably halted the signing uh, for for a year, uh, and I think that's that's probably why they didn't sign because I think when they do sign a striker, I think they're gonna sign someone really huge, some someone like Haaland or Lukaku or someone someone or Harry Kane yeah. or Harry Kane probably someone uh, of you no know, or someone who who's a big name. Um, yeah. So. Uh, that that's actually a very valid point though, Chris. But you mentioned that like that if you have to win the Champions League, you have to have a clear goal scorer. There's something similar uh, about Chelsea as well regarding the same, which I just want yeah. to mention. I mean, every Champions League winner, I think probably in the last five six years, be it Bayern Munich, be it Liverpool, be it the the, the hat trick Real Madrid side and the Barcelona, yeah. Luis Enrique's Barcelona as well. Every yeah. single team, every single one of those teams have actually scored more than like 80, 70 or 80 goals, 80 goals yeah. I think, in, in the league. This Chelsea side scored just 58 goals this season in the Premier League. Yeah. And that's probably, that's, that's probably one of the, one of the most unique points about this Thomas Tuchel Chelsea side as well. They are not high-end goal scorers. Their no, top scorer, yeah, their top oh, scorer is their top scorer is Tammy Abraham and Timo Werner, both having yeah. 12 goals this season in all competitions. I think Mason Mount has what nine goals, if I if I'm not wrong. Yeah. They they signed Kai Havertz, they signed Hakim Ziyech, uh, they signed Timo Werner. Uh, they they signed these attackers only for only for all of these guys to not really score an awful lot of goals. I mean, when you look at every single player that they signed and when you look at them individually, I don't think everyone's been like, these guys have been like 100% successful. I don't think 12 goals a season is really the best 
the best numbers or something really good for a team who really wants to win it all or team like yeah. chelsea especially so yeah this is one thing that's that 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 actually really surprised me because this year's champions league winners chelsea they won it purely based on the defensive side yeah absolutely yeah well that, that that's exactly what i was going to say there because obviously people might say oh <clears throat> come on to my point that obviously i don't believe manchester city we're going to win the Champions League without a, a, a recognised goal scorer in that in that front um, or in their in, in their attack and play at least. And people might say, "Oh well, Chelsea have just done it." But Chelsea have Chelsea don't play the possession game that Manchester City do, and Chelsea are they're not a defensive team. So Chelsea are a very very good team to watch, certainly for me personally, because they get from defence to attack really quick without just hoofing it long. They really really progress their possession quickly. But they've still got a very, very solid. Their their structure is still a defensive structure because at all times they've got the three centre halves. Sometimes when it, like for example, at some point during the game yesterday, all ten players were in Chelsea's half. Well, not at some point for even in the first half before they scored, there was a there was a bit. I remember looking at the shape. Man City had the ball on the halfway line. All ten players, ten Chelsea, ten outfield Chelsea players were in their half. Sometimes they defend with seven players, Chelsea, especially if the wing backs tuck back in, and then you've got the f- to meet the five, and then you've got the two in front of them. So sometimes they, they, to say that they haven't got their their structure is not is not started from a defensive sh- structure would be. And again, for any Chelsea fans that might listen, or even the Chelsea fans in our WhatsApp group, I'm not trying to say they're a defensive team, but they've. Their structure has started from defence and then they've progressed up. So, and again, you, you can't, I don't think you can win. I don't tournament football. It's just tournament football. If you look at tournaments throughout the years, whether it be international base or Champions League, the teams with the most solid defensive structure tend to go on or at least go very far in the competition anyway. So, like you've said, the yeah Chelsea have not got had not a re- recognised striker. In the same way, or certainly haven't had a recognised striker that has, has, has sort of had a great season, but their play is based from a defensive structure and they've not tried to dominate possession in the same way that Manchester City have. And I think, I think going back to the point I raised before, if you're going to dominate the ball in the way that Manchester City do, when teams block you out like Chelsea did to them last night mm. and suffocate you defensively, then you need someone with that just that little bit of movement or that little bit of listen. I don't need to touch the ball. I don't need to uh, play a part in this in this passing pattern. I just need to make this run. I'm going to get the ball and grab one shot and I'm going to score. Exactly. And exactly. that's going to change the game. And that's what Manchester City just don't have. It works in the Premier League, maybe because of the standard of the Premier League's not as high as we want to believe it, but it also works in the Premier League as well because most teams tend to uh, most teams sort of. Man City would just overrun most teams because of the quality and the depth that they have and because the manager is tactically astute. But when he comes up against the really good teams like he did yesterday, who whose who's manager is as tactically astute as him, then you need that little Sutton in a final, which you don't think they have. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, like like you mentioned, Chris, uh, Chelsea, Chelsea's whole structure is based starting from the defence. And I mean, from... from uh, in football, especially in football as a sport, as completely as a sport, I think when you talk about defensive teams, I think you probably generalize them in two different ways. One, yeah. completely dominating possession and not 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 giving the opposition any chance on the ball as such, or or limiting and probably taking over possession most of the time and limiting the number of attempts, opposition attempts. That's that's one kind of being defensive by being ultra attacking or being ultra possessive. And the second way is to just, you know, go go into a deep block, maintain a proper structure at the back and concede p- ball possession. That's that's two two of the most basic ways to be as defensive as you can get. But Chelsea, in my opinion, are like probably a bit more special defensively, a bit more unique defensively, because although, like you said, they do have a proper defensive structure, I've seen their defenders, the, the two defenders not a central guy from from the from the back three i think yeah. most of the time most of the time it's antonio rudiger who i've seen who actually goes out into midfield and presses 
when when there's like yeah. too much action in that central midfield area and probably nicks the ball and wins a tackle or probably gives away a foul in case in case like uh, the opposition bypasses the press so they have properly well trained structure in my opinion and to do yeah. to, to 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 actually make those automatisms and uh, and and actually build a structure in probably less than 6 months is probably is is not just probably it's it's actually unbelievable from tom stokel it's not like chelsea don't have the squad uh, chelsea like don't have a quality or don't have a squad they do have they, they do have like a brilliant array of talent and i think in terms of squad depth in terms of squad depth i think they they're the second best in england just behind manchester city although they might not be the second best they they might not have the second best first 11 probably i think yeah. liverpool might actually have a claim for that but <laughs> but squad wise <laughs> but squad wise i do think they are the second best in england to be honest and yeah. it's not a big surprise that they are, they they are doing it but the way they played in the beginning of the season the frank lampard and thomas tuchel coming in changing the structure of the team completely because under frank lampard the defense was completely non existent There was yeah. there was no clear structure in my opinion. They were getting wow. caught way too often defensively, and I think that's something that Thomas Tuchel uh, probably focused a lot more on, concede or stop the number of shots uh, going in, or, or or probably limit the number of shots that you face, and probably use your immense attacking players or the individual quality of your attacking players or the fast movement that you have with the players, the technical ability of your attacking players. and probably nick a goal they are not a very high scoring team like like i mentioned a few, few minutes back they're not a high scoring team but they are definitely a team that don't concede chances and if yeah. you don't and if you're a team that don't concede good chances it means you are really really good in my opinion yeah but you're always you're always in the game aren't you yeah you don't concede chances you're always in the game exactly you, yeah and i think yeah you've touched on a few good points there i think I think Chelsea now under the, the the best way to describe them for me is they are perfectly coached. They are a perfectly coached team. Tuchel's come in, he's gone straight to the number one problem. He's sorting them out defensively, uh, and yeah, they, they they haven't got, they haven't to say that they don't attack again. <laughs> it probably sounds like what people when you call a team a defensive team, like you said, there's two types of defensive teams. People automatically just assume that. We're talking, but we're making them out to be like an Atletico Madrid, or even worse, like a, a Burnley or a Crystal Palace. That's not, just a, that's not the point that we're making here. We're we're saying that they just because they're sound defensively, it doesn't mean that they don't they don't attack. They do. It's just that it, Tuchel's got he's he's eradicated the number one problem straight away, which was how easy teams were. Getting his shots on goal, how how easy teams were playing through them, is very much for like under Frank Lampard or certainly the first half of the season that Chelsea were probably relying on individual talent winning football matches, which which happens. Don't get me wrong, every team every team needs those individual moments to win a football match, but you can't win titles relying on individual moments throughout the season. And I just think I think if you look. At Chelsea since Tuchel took took over, they're a lot more. They're perfectly coached, like I said, from back to front. They, they know what they're doing, uh, whether their their defensive patterns, whether their attacking patterns. Uh, they know. It looks like they all know what they're doing all over the pitch. And another thing that we we mentioned there to say, it doesn't mean like that defensive coaching is still an art. It's it's still a skill. I know people might not consider it. As entertaining as say attacking coaching, but I actually think this Chelsea team, when I watch them play, it's like they create overloads defensively. It's like they're trying to create their numerical advantage in their own half, especially on uh, where down 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 the uh, down the channels, because and again they're doing it deliberately. It it it, it can't be. It can't. I, I see it happen every time I watch them play. They try and create overloads defensively, and the only reason I can think that they wanted to do it. Is it gives the opposition false beliefs that they can go press onto the ball, and then that then alters the opposition's defensive structure, and then away then whoever's playing in that two or that one, it creates more space for Havertz, uh, Werner, it creates um, 
space for Mason Mount in particular, who obviously thrives on space. So again, obviously probably overstated the point. We're not trying. Uh, we're not trying to make this Chelsea team to sound like a, a backs to the wall, ten men behind the ball team. Uh, they done that last. They didn't. They didn't do that last night. Last night, but they did at points because obviously because of the opposition that they were playing. But they they know what they're doing from an attacking perspective. They know as soon as they win that ball back, they know what to do, and um, that makes them really really effective. And that's how they've won this competition. I said it on our when we done our Champions League review or when 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 the draw came out for the quarterfinals and the semi-finals, and I knew once who they could play. I said, I said, you can't bet on this team winning, not winning this because they they had the perfect draw. And once you get them in a one-off game, they're, they're good enough to beat anyone. And like I said, for, for me, they've got as good a squad, not, maybe not in terms of individual quality as Manchester City, but in terms of options tactically. Thomas Tuchel must think he's in a sweet shot, must think he's a kid again in a sweet shot because this is like the perfect job for him. In terms of the options that he's got, It'd be really, really interesting to see whether he persists with this structure next season. I think he will alter it a little bit, depending on who who he gets in the transfer market. If they do actually go out and get anyone, I still I still believe this team's good enough to go out and compete for the title as it is. But it'll be an interesting summer for Chelsea. Yeah, I actually, I mean, I actually wanted to discuss that uh, whether Thomas Tuchel will keep the same structure next season or will he actually change the formation or the whole structure completely. But I think this there's a lot lot to discuss regarding that. So I think we'll probably park that aside for a future podcast somewhere before next season after after we kind of see how they do in the transfer market because that would probably make more sense. So before ending the podcast, there's one final thing to discuss as well. Engolo Conte. Engolo, Engolo Conte. I mean, every time I hear his song, there's this, this, this actually an Engolo Conte song after that. I don't know if you, if, if you heard that after the 2018 World Cup final, the, the, the guys, the French team guys were singing it and it was so funny, it was so jolly. And I think Engolo Conte is that player. A couple of years before, if you were to ask a lot of people what Engolo Conte was, they would say that he's wonderful defensive midfielder. He would he would actually cover a lot of spaces or he would actually cover a wide area of the pitch and he would win tackles, he would intercept balls. But there was actually no mention. I don't think I don't I don't think there was enough mention of Conte being technically good with the ball. With the ball. I, I think yeah. every time I heard people speak about Conte or most of the time, I think the emphasis was mainly on his off the ball work or his yeah. defensive work. But I think he's he's actually really good even with the ball. He's technically good. And that's something yeah. that people tend to overlook a lot. And in this particular system with three players at the back, I mean, I've seen Conte starting from his Leicester City spell. I, 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 yeah. I can assure you I haven't seen him before that. I, I never saw him before yeah. that. I don't think but, most people did. I would be yeah. People might have come across his name, certainly. Mm-hmm. From the league, but I don't think anyone can sit here and say that they watch they watch him play regularly before he got before he moves to watch the Premier League. But but I mean my point is, from what I've seen of Conte in the last four or five years, I think this particular system has brought the best out of him. I know it's been yeah. just I, I think I know that it's been just a small period here, but having three people at the back who probably will actually help you do a lot of defensive work as well. You have two wing backs as well. So I don't think you need to cover a lot of wide areas as well. But in the middle, if you have a midfielder, you have a midfielder who's a bit more forward thinking, Jorginho in this in this particular case. And if Conte has the ball, he's a very good ball carrier, in my opinion. And I think he his technical ability with the ball is also pretty good. So he has the freedom or he has the freedom to do what he wants. I don't think he's yeah. he probably has to has to probably sacrifice a lot of part of the game. And I think this this particular system brings out the best best traits in him. He's able to mop up the central areas when teams kind of tend to overload. And and I don't think he has a lot of pressure either to do so because because of the way Chelsea set up. And like you said, I think when they defend, they defend as, as a proper unit creating uh, or probably having a lot of numbers behind the ball. Behind the ball. Yeah. So, so I think 
I think his work is probably made a bit more easier by by this proper structure, but it yeah. also actually expands how well his ability is on the board, or probably even on the break as well. You can see him actually making those really amazing runs up up front when Chelsea break through, or even when yeah. he has the ball as well. He he just carries on with the ball like a train. He he just moves so fast, and that's that's something. That, that's actually really good to see, and this is something that I want to actually mention before ending the pod as well. Chris, do you think Engolo Kante probably deserves a shout for the Ballon d'Or if he just keeps on going with the same thing and France win the Euros? Yeah, of course he does. He's he's world class, uh, and that's the, that's the only thing you can label as him. He's a world class footballer. Now people might people tend to think oh only like when you think of world class that like you have to be able to take four players on and uh, put one in the top corner on a regular basis or you might you know, might need to be a bit more of a, the same ilk as like a Kevin De Bruyne where you can just control the tempo of a game now now world class he is world class at what he does on that football field and you've touched on a very good point there is a bit he's got better so if you look at the Angola Kante that uh, played for Leicester and in particular that title winning team obviously he weren't he weren't request he weren't his job weren't to sort of get on the ball as much and get involved in the build up just because of the way that team was set up tactically and obviously they used I think it was Danny Drinkwater at that time wasn't it who sat alongside him who was sort of used to to, to play that role if you like uh, but then obviously he's gone on to Chelsea and he's won Premier League again uh, and I actually think as well you've touched on there I think this role what Ray Thomas Tuchel's got on playing. It's like playing with twelve man, with a twelve man, isn't it? Because defensively, he's all he, he must be a nightmare to play against because he very rarely loses a tackle. He's always just there at reading the game. He's he's brilliant at reading the game. He's just there with he either intercepts, uh, and then he's quick. He's quick off the mark. He's out straight into he's out straight into the correct position. He very rarely gets caught out of position when he goes hunting for the ball as well probably because of his energy levels and his ability to recover his position. Um, but yeah, like you said there, since since Tuchel, well, it's not actually, to be fair, I think Maurizio Sarri deserves a little bit of credit for his for, for Kante's progression as a footballer as well. Because especially you see lazy punditry over here in the UK that sort of criticised Sarri uh, for not playing him in front of the back two at the time because I know I know Sarri played with a back four, didn't he? And everyone used to say, Tim Sherwood in particular, comes to mind and say, oh, well, they're playing Jorginho uh, as a defensive holder midfielder and they're playing the best holder midfielder in the world and Kante sort of to, to, to his right or as part of that two in a 4-3-3. Three, three. Well, he, he never was a holder midfielder. And any any kind of football analyst or any kind of person that watches football knows N'Golo Kante is not a holder midfielder. He's not someone who's going to sit there in front of the back four or or, or in front of the centre house and dictate play. If you done him, if you put him there, you, you, you're totally you're you're not getting the best out of him. You're not playing to his strengths, allowing him to do what Thomas Tuchel's allowing him to do, which is go hunting for the ball and actually when he gets on it, coaching him to actually be better on the ball is 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 now what we're saying, seeing sorry and. Uh, I actually think that sort of that progression started from under Sarri, and I think you've seen it. maybe I think it was halted a little bit under Lampard, but I know he did have injury issues. Uh, but now you're seeing the best of him, and I think I think at the moment, like you said, his ability to join the attack with very good runs at the moment because of his energy level. You've seen it yesterday in the first half when he nearly scored, and he uh, he made the, um, a run from deep to I don't know if it was Chilwell that crossed the ball and he, uh, his header was quite a way but obviously just the fact that he got there showed showed the type of role that he's being asked to do um, and yeah I think I can't think of many people in world football at the moment that can do what he can do I really can't mm, yeah absolutely and and I think I, I think if France win the Euros and Chelsea continue uh, winning a lot of games probably until the end of the year this is a really, really good chance that Mgolo Conte win the Ballon d'Or, and I think that I certainly will... hope so. I certainly, yeah. I certainly hope so, mate, because obviously he doesn't 
he's not in the limelight or he doesn't really have the profile that the, the Ballon d'Or winners usually have. But that's, like you've said, what he does at the moment is indispensable, really. Exactly. And, I mean, Luka Modric won it in 2018 for, I think, I think if, if N'Golo Conte keeps keeps on actually doing what he's been doing probably from the start of this this particular year uh, I think he's going to he's going to actually outdo what Modric did back in 2018 and yeah. for, for Conte as well I don't think he has a competition of Ronaldo anyway Messi yeah. probably started the year really well uh, and, but I'm not really really sure if he's going to be able to keep up the same consistency considering how Barcelona's been, so yeah. I'm not very sure about Messi and Ronaldo being are comp- competing with him. Robert Lewandowski is a very very big sh- or a big big comp- competition for Conte definitely, but I think this this is actually a good chance we see we see we might see Conte winning uh, the Ballon d'Or if 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 the same thing keeps on happening if if he just yeah. keeps up the same thing. So, yeah, especially as well because he's pivotal. He's not just he's not just sort of. I mean, the Luka Modric one in did you say it was 2018? I remember thinking that that's he's a he's a great footballer, but that was undeserved. I thought I thought that sort yeah. of he didn't actually play well that year. He got it. It was more sort of like the year before. And I hope I hope like you said, Kante is pivotal to his team's success, and he actually contributes to it. He's not just a bystander and a winning team. Which, uh, I mean, it does happen when you see people getting awards, especially this World FIFA Player of the Year and uh, etc. where people are just sort of, they, they, they get it when they haven't had the best of seasons and there's also other players that have had really good seasons that don't get recognised. I mean, if France do go on to win, win a tournament in the summer, that they won't win it without Kante playing well. And Chelsea wouldn't have won this game yesterday and probably gone this far in the competition without, without him. So I've got a feeling that Lewandowski might give it, be given it just because of the farce of them not doing it last year. But for me, I don't think he would deserve it this year if, like you said, France were to go on and win it and Chelsea win the Champions League. I think he has to be at least, at least in that top three. But yeah, yeah, and, and I just want to raise one more point before we go. And I know obviously it's been a great podcast and this has probably overrun a little bit today. I don't know. I haven't seen anything on Twitter. I cannot believe John Stones has not got more sort <laughs> of stick, yeah. stick for his part in that goal. I really can't. I've not seen it anywhere yet. I've not seen it anywhere. Maybe, maybe over here the punditry and obviously watching it on BT etc. with the British pundits. Maybe they don't want to label it because because he's a British player. They are, we know know that they they definitely at BT certainly have an agenda against. A pro agenda, anyway, against against the British players because they they big every one of them up whenever they can. But mm, yeah. just what I hope anyone who obviously agrees with me or doesn't agree with me, just watch the goal again and watch John Stones. He is the <laughs> reason that goal happens yesterday. I cannot believe his position. Watch mm. it because not only does he leave his position, right? He leaves the position which Werner actually makes ends up making the run into, but then he doesn't put any pressure on Mount. Yeah. Either, and Mount and once that happens, the goal the goal goes from there because Mount's got the ball without any pressure on him at all. John Stones has actually ran towards him, but not in a sort of press orientated run. He just sort of laxy daisy, gets pulled out of position, then stood in no man's land. If you're gonna go that far, you've got to continue and put pressure on the ball. But then he doesn't. Werner makes the run, which is a very, very intelligent run, yeah, by the way, that he yeah. doesn't get credit for. He makes the run. Diaz has to follow him then because he runs into the space. And then once Diaz has gone, Havertz is in. And then I've seen, I seen a lot of people blaming Zinchenko for, for the goal. And I thought, OK, then, yeah, he might not be quick off the mark as Havertz is to make that run. But he's certainly not at fault for that goal for me. Yeah, you could you want to say, oh, right, yeah, well, he he's pick up that run quicker uh, then then maybe you you could say that that might be a little bit a little bit harsh but John Stones is at fault for for that goal for me and I don't know if you notice it mate when you've seen it just just watch it again if you didn't just look at where he stood look at his position look at his movements I will say it again 
I've said it as well, and I'm in a good position to say it because I watch the developments every week at Everton, every when it when he came through, and I'll say it again: he cannot defend. <laughs> he cannot defend. He can't. It's easy to say he's a good defender when your team dominates seventy percent of the possession of the ball every week, but he can't defend. He cannot do the things that a natural defender, he, he's not got the instincts of a natural defender and those things can't be coached. They're things that you learn at a young age and he gets away with it because of obviously who, who he's next to this year because Ruben Diaz has had a very good year. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely not football writers play the year but I mean that's another issue but yeah, uh, he's at fault for the goal. Mm. John Stones. <laughs> yeah, it it would have been criminal uh, if if he, if he hadn't uh, not covered that goal as well. So thank you yeah. for actually mentioning that <laughs> goal and especially Timo Werner's run because he gets a lot of stick for his finishing. There there was actually two good chances as well before he yeah. actually made that run. Uh, he had a, a, a kind of a shot which which actually didn't which he actually didn't shoot. Uh, it hit I think it hit his other foot and it just bounced back. So he had two good chances, but I think his off the ball movement and his off the ball work is really underrated. And yeah, that 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 was actually a really good example of how good he can be without the ball yeah. as well, Tim Werner. So that's nice of you to cover. And this probably brings us to the end of this episode. Thirty minute once episode was again what we planned, but we yeah. actually gone on to do around 55 to six minutes, but it's absolutely fine. I think we covered everything in detail and for the listeners as well. Thank you so much for being patient and tuning into our show. And we have some really good content coming up in the next couple of months as well. Chris and Sudesh will be covering the Copa America and Euros m- more often. And that's going to be really good as well. They're going to be keeping you up, uh, keeping you updated with how teams are going to play, how how the games go about as well from a tactical perspective as well. And we might actually have some special guest appearances as well in middle. And we have some special patron content as well coming up. So thank you so much once again for tuning in and listening to our episode. Thank you once again so much, Chris, for yeah, but how you mean? Yeah, for being a wonderful co-host <laughs> and <laughs> congratulations to all the Chelsea fans around the world as well I hope you're still you're still sober from all the drinking from last night <laughs> yeah. but, but when you're feeling alright and when you're when you're over it congratulations and make sure you enjoy this win as much as you can because it is the biggest it is the Champions League so until yeah. next time Bye-bye.